And the message today will focus on verse 18, but to get our bearings, maybe we'll read again from verses 13 and following. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What do you think of Christ? Really, that's the most important question, and we can divide all the different peoples of this world into different categories based upon how they answer that question. We take a person off the street of our nation and ask them that question, what do you think of Jesus Christ? And they might say, well, I, I believe he existed. He is a historical person. Indeed, we number our years according to his birth. And I'm sure he said some, some good and profitable things, but that's about it. I think he was a good and a wise teacher. And maybe you'd stop another person and say, well, I'm a Muslim. And what do I think of Jesus? Well, I think he was a holy prophet of God. Indeed, someone with a great message from heaven. But certainly, certainly the Christians overdue it in their estimation of him. Certainly he is not worthy of worship or the attention that the Christian church gives. And of course, for many, they can't even bring themselves to construct coherent thoughts because so great is their hatred of Jesus and all that he stands for that they, they simply dismiss his claims. And of course, even in the Christian church, we can say that there are those who have a certain profession that he is indeed as he claims. But what we have here in in this 16th chapter is something that goes far beyond that. We have a confession of true faith. This man, Peter, he was asked that question, whom do you say that I am? And with the heart and with the mouth, he gives this great confession. Thou art the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the promise unto the people and the hope of the ages. And thou art the Son of the living God, indeed equal unto the Father, possessing all the glory of true divinity. You are the very Son of the living God. A great confession. And you notice how Christ praises him. He says, Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah, or son of Jonah. 
For flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. If one would truly make a confession such as this, a confession which really comes from the soul, it is because the very glory of Christ has been revealed unto them by supernatural revelation from the very Father and God of of salvation. It's a great thing that we see here. It's not the thing that flesh and blood, not, not human logic, not human effort can attain unto, but it is true saving faith born of the Holy Spirit of God in the soul, which necessarily results in, in confession, in speaking that which lives within a glorious trust in the Savior. And it is in this context that Jesus um, praises Peter and he as well gives a revelation into the future. The future of all those who confess like with Peter this Savior. And that is what I'd like to especially focus on here in verse 18. And I say also unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So my desire to open up especially those words, to focus upon them, to consider them in their depth somewhat, and as well, their practical relevance for ourselves as we enter into this new year. And I'd like to write over the sermon this thought. The certain triumph of Christ's church. The certain triumph of Christ's church. And I'd like to draw out three thoughts that I see in this text. First, we will consider the builder of the church, second, the rock of the church, and third, the future of the church. And I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Have you ever participated in a building project. I understand there's at least some people here remember even when this building was constructed. And maybe you've had some role in in other uh, building projects as well. So you need to find the most suitable materials for that. And you don't want to cut corners, right? You want the very best that you can get in order to make sure it's a stable structure, a safe Building and indeed uh, one that will will be nice to look at as indeed our our building here is very suitable for our needs and here we have a building that is of a very unusual character. Jesus speaks of himself as a builder and he says he is building something. He is building something, and and he's speaking about this as though it were a great structure, an edifice, uh, something uh, that you could look at and and reside within. And he's 
not speaking literally here of something physical, but rather of something spiritual, something that is a great mystery of the faith, and that is the doctrine of the Christian church. The Christian church. There's all sorts of ideas about what the church is or what the church should be. But if we would uh, speak properly and precisely, we understand that that group which properly uh, has this claim to the title of the church and that which Christ is speaking about here, it is speaking of something spiritual in nature. A great body of individuals, a great number of persons who collectively are corporately referred to in this way. And it's not so strange that Jesus should use the analogy of a building to refer to the church. Rather, it's something that we find uh, elsewhere as well. For example, in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 9, where Paul is speaking about his own ministry as a, a preacher of the gospel. And he says in Ephesians 2 and verse 9, For we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry. Ye are God's building. So he's referring to the church as God's building. According to the grace of God, verse 10, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereon. For other foundation hath no man laid than it no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So here Paul spoke of the church as a building and himself as a master builder. And I think in a much more proper way Jesus can lay claim to this title. He is the true builder of the church. And unlike ourselves, who might choose the most desirable, the most precious, the most uh, innately um, expensive uh, uh, materials that will really get the job done, Jesus chooses materials very different than that, doesn't he? He chooses the lowly, that which is not only undesirable in itself, but actually filthy and polluted and heinous. He chooses sinners, those in the midst of spiritual death and gross, heinous transgressions, those who have never once kept one of God's spiritual commandments perfectly, those who have never once loved God with purity of heart and soul. These rebels against the King of Heaven He takes them and he uses them as his building materials in order to build his church. And it's interesting, the very word church, it uh, doesn't come up that often in this gospel of Matthew. If you've read the gospel according to Matthew, you know that this book has many references to the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven, that was the essence of Christ's message. And and the church, well, it comes up more rarely in the way he speaks about it. But it's not hard to discern that, in fact, this is something that is always assumed in his teaching. And 
It's indeed everywhere in the scripture. And I think there's sometimes uh, an abuse of this verse in, in this way. We sometimes, even as Reformed people, think that Jesus was coming up with something that the disciples had, had never thought of before, a church. And they think, well, this is something wholly new and, and has never, never happened before. There should be a church on the planet. There should be those who are designated by this name church. And some people would, would say, well, just think about the actual Greek word that's used, ekklesia, the, the called out ones, literally. And they would, would maybe say, well, there's something about the doctrine of divine calling here. But in fact, that's, that's what they call in, um, in theology more of the etymological fallacy, just trying to break down the, the components of a word and trying to get a meaning from that. And in fact, you want to rather understand how a word has been received and used. That's how you get the meaning. And this word, in fact, uh, was, was very common in, among the Jewish people. If, for example, you would look in the book of Acts, there's, uh, in the seventh chapter, there's that great speech by the martyr Stephen. And I think just for, for clarity to get this point uh, down, I think I'd like to read a couple verses from that great speech that Stephen gave in chapter 7, beginning at verse 37 of the book of Acts. And he's uh, discoursing about Moses at this point, so this is where I'll pick up. This is that Moses which said unto the children of Israel, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren. Like unto me, him shall ye hear. This is he, again speaking of Moses, that was in the church in the wilderness with the angel which spake to him in the Mount Sinai and with our fathers who received the lively oracles given unto us. So what I would just want to draw out there is that he refers to a church, same word, ecclesia, in the wilderness. And so what he's referring to is that there is this assembly, there is this congregation, there is a group of people assembled and gathered together in the wilderness, in the days of Moses, when that great angel of the Lord spoke unto the people through the fire, a pillar of fire by night and the pillar of, of smoke by day. That was the church the gathered people of God, the, the congregation of the Lord, the church. And so you find not so much um, the precise word church in the Old Testament, but many places where this concept is referred to in Deuteronomy 31 verse 30. And Moses spake in the ears of all the congregation of Israel the words of this song until they were ended. So the congregation of Israel, the church of Israel, it's a, a simple designation. It, it is referring to all the covenant people of God considered as especially a worshiping body. They're not just a nation among other nations. They're not just bound together by, by lines of descent and family connections. No, they are separated unto worship. 
And as such, the covenant people are, in both Old Testament and New Testament, referred to as the church. That is what Je- the, the context that Jesus is referring to. So he, 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 when he says, I will build my church, he is drawing a distinction. He is saying, well, you know the church as it presently exists. You know this, uh, this people of God as they are uh, uh, covenanted to him in this land of Israel. But let me tell you something. I'm about to do something new. I'm about to do something glorious, and that is I'm going to build my church. What is he referring to? He's referring to the New Testament congregation, the New Testament assembly. He is to gather a new people, a new people unto himself of his choosing. And they are to be chosen from every tribe, color, nation, and kindred. They are to be chosen not only from the Jew, but also from the Gentile. Indeed, all of the elect of God from all the nations, they shall be assembled together in his church. So that is what he is referring to. This is a glorious act of Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God. This is the apple of his eye. This is the bride for which he laid down his life. This is the object of his desire that he strove for in the days of his humiliation. It is that which he continues to earnestly contend for by his word and spirit, and that is the building of his church. The congregation is still in the business of building this church. He knows those who are his. And he has appointed that this, through the preaching of the gospel, that he as the Savior is proclaimed unto sinners like you and I. And he is held forth in all of his glory. And he is, is portrayed in all of his, his beauty. And he woos sinners unto himself. And he pleads with them and he strives with them. And he says, come unto me and receive life. Anyone who is weary, anyone who is tired of their sinful lives, they can come unto Christ. And they can be part of his great building project. What a glorious redeemer that he should always be at work. This Christ is never at rest. He has a building project that he will see through to completion according to the precise schematics of the plan from eternity. Every single piece will be put into place and it will be a glorious masterpiece. It will be a work of artistry and it is that which all of history is about. Ultimately, the very reason for anything existing is so that God would be glorified in Jesus Christ through the salvation of his elect church. That is what we see here in the first place, the builder of this church. But let's consider also in the second place what we have in this verse, and that is the rock of this church. And I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Now at this point, we have to engage in a bit of a a controversy. Of course, 
we harbor no hatred or animosity towards any uh, group of people, and certainly not that of the Roman Catholic uh, Church. And yet, we ought to recognize that the Roman Catholic Church has a controversy with us, because they would say that the teaching of this verse is this, that Christ has appointed Peter as the rock of the church, that he is as it were, the visible head of the church, what you could call the vicar or the representative of Christ. And that all of the bishops of Rome, all of those who claim the name Pope, that they are those appointed by Christ to be the rock of the church. And that all those who would not submit unto the decrees of the Pope of Rome do not have the name Christian, and indeed they are schismatics and heretics and will not receive eternal life. So this is the claim of the Roman Catholic Church, and it is why they pronounce their anathema upon all of the Reformed churches. And we ought to uh, take this quite seriously. Is this actually the teaching of this text? Well, there's a number of reasons why we can say that this is, in fact, a very uh, erroneous and indeed heretical interpretation of this text. In the first place, if you would consider uh, something of the context, right? It proceed, it follows, doesn't it? It follows uh, something that Peter does. He makes a confession of faith in Jesus Christ. And then you notice that uh, Christ says these words Thou art Peter, or Petros, rock. You are rock. That's literally what the name Peter means, rock. You are rock. Now, I think that the the most common sense interpretation of that is that his strong confession of faith was such that he was one who was strong in the Lord. And so like a rock is strong and hard and durable, you will now be called rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church. Now, while the previous word was petros in the masculine, this rock is in the feminine, petra, petra. So on this rock, so you are rock, but upon this rock, I will build my church. And the testimony of uh, the Reformed churches has been that rather this is not speaking of Peter as the rock upon which the church is built. In fact, this is referring to his confession of faith in Christ. For it is Christ, properly speaking, who is the rock of the church, and it is more broadly the confession of Christ, the gospel, which is the rock upon which the church is built. Now, could it be that this is an interpretation, as I've laid it out for you, that the Reformed are coming up with in order to escape the the argument of the Church of Rome? Is it the case that all Christians up until the 16th century held that this was referring to Peter and his successors? Well, in fact, if you would read the early church fathers, they speak in the same way that we do. If you would look at the church father Augustine, who lived um, three, in the years 354 to 420, 
So in the early generations of the church, this is what he said about this when he was preaching a sermon. Therefore thou art Peter. He's paraphrasing Christ's words. Therefore thou art Peter, and upon this rock, which thou hast confessed, upon this rock, which thou hast acknowledged, saying that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, I will build my church upon myself, who am the son of the living God, I will build my church. Upon myself I will build, not upon thee. Not upon, this, not upon that rock, but upon this rock, upon the confession of Christ. And John Chrysostom, who lived 347 to 407, says this, Upon this rock, that is, upon the faith of your confession. That is, the confession of Christ. So these uh, church fathers, who even the Roman Catholics revere, would side not with the Pope of Rome, but rather with the Reformed Church on this issue. And I think even if you didn't uh, quite find all that persuasive, the fact that this is immediately followed by a rebuke to Peter and the statement that, in fact, he is speaking for Satan, well, that should tell you that Peter was not infallible, and no pope of Rome is infallible. Indeed, they are imposters and those who claim what is not theirs. So that, in the first place, it is not speaking of Peter that is the rock. Rather, it is Christ. And more broadly, the confession of Christ. That is the true foundation and rock of the church. Is there... Is there any ambiguity about this? Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 9. For we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry. Ye are God's building. According to the grace of God which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereon. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Whenever any so-called Christian church makes anything else its foundation for existence, anything else that which their very identity and mission and purpose is based upon, they to that degree depart from the will of God concerning the church. And if, if it becomes heinous and exaggerated and, and extended over time, then those so-called Christians and that so-called church, they will become rather a synagogue of Satan. It is as we confess Christ in truth that we can lay claim to being an expression of the true Christian church. And that goes to this question, how is it with you today? Can you make this confession that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, that all of my help is found in you, that I look to none other for my salvation? I desire to please none other than you, Jesus. My whole life is to be laid down for you. If that is your confession today, friends, then that, that is a good thing. That is a precious thing that anyone could truly say that. 
if you can't say that today. Or if you can say the words, but it lacks when it comes to sincerity and heart, then you can never be content until you come to this place. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. No other foundation for a life. No other foundation for the church. No other foundation for eternity. Christ alone and, for, and Christ forever. All glory to Jesus Christ. So we see that in the second place. Not only uh, the builder of the church, but also the rock of the church. And let's consider in the third and last place the future of the church. Well, there'd be great depths of riches that we could explore even at these, these previous two thoughts. But I hasten to this third thought that is held forth in this verse, and that concerns the future. He says, doesn't he? And I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Striking imagery here. This great structure, this great building, it's almost pictured as a fortress now. It's being built up and there it stands in its glory and its majesty, the workmanship of God. But opposite, opposite across the terrain, there looms another great fortress. One constructed not of God, but of the devil. Even hell and all of its forces Death and sin and all the demonic hordes, they are pictured here as a great kingdom. A kingdom which rules over this world in great extent as we see around us with all the heinous evil and opposition to the law and to the gospel and to the word of the Most High God. As we see the enslaving power of the devil upon the unbelievers. It is all pictured here in all its ghastly, dark, ominous, imposing hideousness. It's the, it's the fortress of hell. And out of this fortress come all the, the hordes of hell seeking to destroy the workmanship of God. There is this war and battle taking place. But where this word of Christ comes forth, as we see that battle all around us, as we feel ourselves in the thick of the fury of Satan, as he seeks to extinguish the preaching of the gospel from our nation, as he seeks to ensnare even the professing church into great and heinous sins, and even, even to destroy those who have confessed the name of Christ, we have this confession that those gates of hell, that evil kingdom of the devil, it will never prevail against the church. Is that because the church is so fearsome? Is it because the devil would look at the likes of us and say that we are any threat to his power? Certainly not. If it was left unto ourselves, we would be out of this, con um, out of this battle in an instant. It would be a rout, a utter destruction. We would all be lost and enslaved and destroyed forever. We would never see a single conversion in our midst. We would never once have one in our walls who would know the blessings of salvation on our side. 
But here is the testimony that stands firm. Christ, who is building his church, is also protecting his church. With all of his divine power and glory and might, he is ensuring that not even one of his people is lost. At those gates of hell, they will not destroy his workmanship. The gates of hell will never prevail against the church. Yes, we can see individual congregations. They will rise and they will fall. There may even come a day, Lord forbid, where maybe we have to lock those doors for good. But let me tell you something. It will not be because the builders failed. Rather, his glorious structure will continue to be built and built and built until it is seen through to completion. Every one of God's chosen ones shall be saved. But I think there's actually something even, even greater here in this promise. Isn't it kind of interesting that the, the image of these two great fortresses or these two structures at war that it's spoken of the gates of hell will not prevail. The gates. Indeed, it almost seems like the the force of hell are in a defensive posture, doesn't it? Rather than the offensive. It's almost like it's saying that here is the, the kingdom of Christ and it is storming those gates of the devil. That indeed, the the gates that are put up in order to stop the invading forces of Christ from storming hell and to seizing its souls out of the grips of the devil and bringing them into liberty in Christ, that, that those gates, all the power of the devil, they can't stop Jesus Christ's kingdom. Indeed, if you would look at, uh, in a concordance about how that word prevail is used, it's sometimes used in exactly that way. Not in the sense of it won't conquer and destroy Christ's church, but in the sense that it can't sustain itself. It can't prevail. It can't last. It will be annihilated. That's an even better promise, isn't it? A promise that as we seek to do the Lord's will, as we do so in dependence upon his spirit, in obedience to his commands, that Christ has given this promise that the devil will not be able to prevail against you. That as you set about sharing the gospel with your neighbors and as your, as your family, as you seek to live lives that are, that are holy in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, as you really seek to take your life and all that it's worth and to offer it as a lowly love gift unto the King of Kings, that even your tiny efforts, they will be used of God according to the promise of Christ to destroy the devil and all his works. Is that not a reason for entering into this next year with hope? If all we had was our own ingenuity, our own plans, our own strategies and powers and talents, well, it would amount to not even a hill of beans. But if Christ is with us, who can be against us? If Christ is for us, then who can stand against us? Indeed, As Paul says in in one place, the devil shall soon be trampled under our feet as we seek to lay hold of this promise to believe it and act accordingly. Are you in the fight today? 
Have you maybe laid aside your weapons for a time and, and just thought that you would sleep through the rest of your life on this world? Well, let me tell you something. The battle is at hand, and the, and the Lord would have you fall in line and to storm the gates of hell in order to be robbers of hell, snatching souls from the burning and ensuring that this glorious building receives each and every one of its building materials. Shall we not earnestly take up this cause of Christ and confess, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, in heart, in word, and in deed. Amen. In response to the message, let us sing from Psalter 295. Gracious Lord Jesus, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we say with heart and with word and with our all that you are worthy to receive our faith. You are worthy to receive our obedience. For you are both a conqueror and one who shall conquer over all your enemies. That indeed you said on the cross, it is finished. And so... 
on the cross, he triumphed over principalities and powers and made a show of them openly. Indeed, you, O Christ, have inherited the nations. And it will be the case that you will have your kingdom extending from sea to sea as long as sun and moon endures. We pray that according to your great promise that you would vanquish the fortress of hell, that you would destroy the devil and his kingdom, and that the gates of this hideous kingdom would not endure that rather you would give us to do valiantly in our day, and that you would enable us by your word and spirit to give us the obedience and the courage and the resolve to do your will in all things. Help us, we pray, for we are sinners, we are weak, we can do nothing of ourselves. But you have said that we must come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we must plead the promises that you yourself have given, and may it please you, Lord, to indeed ensure that these are realized, not only in the life of your church globally, but also in the expression of it here in London. Save souls, we pray, whether here or in this neighborhood or wherever these words are heard. And we pray it all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us now sing from Psalter 49.
now depart to your homes and go in peace. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, together with the communion of the Holy Spirit, be and remain with you all. Amen.